following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. So, uh, as you know, I'm not Chris, so, but I am a little easier on the eyes, so <laughs> it'll be a little easier for you to, to watch me s- speak a little bit. Thank you, Jonathan. appreciate that. So uh, <laughs> so I, I just figured out every time I come up and speak, I try to um, make fun of someone so that I feel better about myself. <laughs> so, so Chris was the target today. So, uh, <laughs> and well needed, right? Great. So um, anyway, uh, you can turn over to Hebrews 10, uh, 19. Uh, when, uh, when dropping into a passage of scripture, um, which is kind of, a bummer for those who um, get to speak every once in a while is that, you know, tremendous amount of context usually has to go into it. So I figured out about halfway or three quarters of the way through um, preparations that, you know, I, I basically could just stop. So the context was nearly the entire message. So um, that's where we're at today. So I, I gave Jordan a lot of info. We're going to get into, you know, Hebrews 11 today. And and um, so we'll spend a lot of time in chapter 10 and we'll get to 11 one day. Uh, we'll get to 11 a little bit today. Um, and go see what God has for us there. Um, but before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray um, for our hearts and just that we would receive this with faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for you that you um, have made us and you call us to uh, be your own. Thank you for your work in us and opening our eyes to see you for who you are, giving us this faith uh, to believe in your Son. We thank you for his work. And in his work, um, we rejoice in what you're doing. So I pray today our time would be profitable. I pray that we would, um, our hearts would be open to hear your word, that we would um, not just assume that we have our acts together, but that we would come ready and uh, willing to change as your spirit works in us. He would change us, um, make us more like you, enlarge our hearts, expand our faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, uh, if you've turned over to Hebrews 10, 19, um, this section of Hebrews, the writer has just taken the reader through an explanation of the redemption that is through Jesus' blood. The promised Christ came to fulfill the law, the shadow of redemption and restoration pictured in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the offering of bulls and goats, the perpetual shedding of blood of mere animals, found their ultimate and for all time single sacrifice for sin in God's own son, Jesus. You see that in 10, 12. The finality of such a sacrifice is displayed as Christ sits down at the right hand of the Father, having completed his task and awaits the culmination of all things where his enemies would be made the footstool for his feet. In this context... The writer exhorts the reader. In 1019, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Notice the intro to this paragraph, brothers. He's writing to those who have already already taken the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and believed. So then what does he tell them to do? Verse 20 through 22 says, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Because of the confidence that comes through the work of Christ, he calls them to a continued, genuine, and expanded confidence in faith. He calls them to draw near, to draw near to God. Just as the presence of God was to be found behind the curtain in the tabernacle and above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, so now the presence of God is accessible by the tearing of his own son's flesh, thus opening access to the Father. The curtain has been removed, gaining access for all who would, who would believe. Through it is finished begins the new and living way. It is new in that it replaces the old by magnitude, by expanse, by majesty. It is living in that this great priest has offered himself once for all, and although sacrificed, was raised from the dead, interceding for his people, thus securing access to the Father by Jesus, we can draw near. So I would challenge you that full assurance of our faith comes through remembering the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Kind of like what Chris read to us this morning. For he who promised is faithful. In this verse, we realize that the impetus for our faith is not found in ourselves, but rather in the worthiness of the faithful one. We know this to be true in our earthly spheres, right? There are people that we have varying faith in. As many of you know, I'm a project manager for a construction company, and with management comes those who need to be managed, right? So, uh, for instance, I have some subcontractors who I can almost guarantee that they are not going to do what I ask them to do. It's almost a sure, it's almost a certainty that they will not do what I ask them to do. Um, and Mark knows this to be true. Mark and I do the same job for the same company. And uh, that's just the way it is. And so, uh, you know, so those of you who've renovated your house, you know what I'm talking about. You can almost guarantee that the date that you're given has nothing to do with reality, right? And so it's just, it's just made up. It's just make up days. Sometimes I even schedule the wrong date because I know it'll probably happen on this day, not the date that they told me. And so, <laughs> so anyway, um, others, though, few and far between, do almost exactly what you want, exactly when they say that they will and almost never let you down. So my level of faith, then, depends on the faithfulness of the person in whom I am trusting. Yet it is true of me and everyone else that either often or eventually we are going to let someone down. However, verse 23 reminds us something incredibly important. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. The impetus for our faith is not found in ourselves, but rather in the worthiness of the faithful one. I feel that often we struggle trusting God because we don't know him very well. We don't know his word very well. We know him by circumstance and perceived experience, or we think we do. We feel let down by him because we don't get what we want. We live in a culture where the expectation for Christians is that if you believe in Jesus, 
all of your wildest dreams will come true. I called, that's a Napoleon Dynamite quote. I, I call it Pedro Sanchez theology. All right, so if you've seen that movie, if you haven't, don't watch it. It's a waste of time. Uh, if you have, enjoy, enjoy the laugh there. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that the Christian society that we live in? We, we think, it's not the Christian society we live in, we think this too. We think that if we do everything right, if we have faith, we have, and if we believe in God, that he's going to make everything just exactly the way we want it. All right, and, and what that is, it's, it's a misunderstanding of the truth of Scripture. He says that he's going to work all things together for good. And yet so often we find ourselves wondering when we will, we will see this good ever come. At that point, we're given the opportunity to ask the question, will I trust God or will I look at my immediate circumstances and doubt him? But we are not alone in this. Verses 32 through 34, the writer admonishes the readers, but, I, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those, who, with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But they seem to be struggling now in faith. For he continues in verse 35. Look at 35. It says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He tells them, don't throw away your confidence because of your circumstances. Endure so that you might receive what is promised. I find it odd when he says, so that when you have done the will of God. I don't know if you do in this passage or not, but when I was reading through it, it kind of struck me as unusual because um, when I hear done the will of God, my mind instantly goes to works. My mind goes to um, what did you do? Um, what should you do? Um, but aren't we in a passage on faith? We are. Yes, we are. The Spirit brought to mind John 6.40 as I was studying through this. John 6.40 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus is speaking here, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When Jesus proclaims himself as the bread of life, he finishes by sharing the will of God. The will of God is faith resulting in eternal life. We are relying, if we are relying, and do not miss this, if we are relying on circumstances to bolster our faith in exchange for knowing the giver of our faith, we will live life doubting the goodness of God. Let me say it again. If we are relying on circumstances to bolster our faith, in exchange for knowing the giver of our faith, we will live life doubting the goodness of God. For the impetus of faith is not found in ourselves and positive circumstances, but rather in the worthiness of the faithful one. But yet as we read on, this same, this same faithful one says in verse 38, but my righteous one 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. First, doesn't that verse give you the chills, knowing the fickle nature of our hearts? Knowing the doubt and lack of faith that our hearts are capable of having? If he shrinks back, God says, I will have no pleasure in him. But we can't stop. We keep reading. But now remember what we just learned. The impetus for our faith is in the faithful one. In Hebrews 12, we are taught that Jesus is the founder and the completer of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. He is the one who gives us faith. He is the author, other translations, author and perfecter, author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who did not shrink back, but he fully pleased the Father. This is the righteous one who in the face of sure suffering, sure bearing the weight of sin, of the world on his shoulders, bearing the weight of of the impending death on the cross in crucifixion says, not my will, but yours be done. But we are not of those who shrink back, verse 39 says. So we rejoice in the confidence that comes from the one who has gone before, the one who didn't shrink back, the faithful one, the son of the faithful one. Verse 39 says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and and preserve their souls. It is with this confidence that we enter our passage for today, Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11, um, I think it functions in uh, three ways. At first, it gives us further understanding of faith, kind of teaches us about faith, teaches us what faith is. Um, two, it, ex- it displays the value that God places on faith. Three, it shows the incompleteness of the results of faith prior to being made complete in Christ. So you have this wording. We won't get into the third one here much, but I would challenge you to write it down and look at it later. Read through there and see that the incompleteness in the results of faith prior to being made perfect in Christ. There's so much that you see this transition from even these true heroes of the faith to where they were looking in a distance. I may actually just read this verse for you. I didn't even put this in the notes, but it... um, It says in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. So they are looking for this culmination. They're looking for Jesus to come and fulfill and to make these things complete. And even our interactions, which is really awesome. I didn't bring this up in the, the... first one, but in our interactions here, um, read verse 30 with me really quickly, because we're going to not get into this, but I wanted to share it a little to pique your interest to study on your own. But verse 39, I'm sorry, it says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised yet, right? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They should not be made complete. Meaning Moses The hero, Moses or Abraham, they die unfulfilled with what God has in store. They know more is coming. But yet we, with no merit of our own, 
we get to fulfill really what, what they had that was lacking. Our experience in faith with Jesus Christ rounds out the entire story of Scripture. And it allows for this whole picture to beautifully show this faith in the one who would be to come. And now we, looking back on the death of Christ, we see that find its completeness in Jesus. And we know this Jesus who completes it all. So that being said, in the remaining time, we will look at the first two briefly, and you guys can work on the others later in your own study there. But let's look at the first few verses of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I have spoken to many people struggling to believe in Christ for salvation. They see the value of Christianity for family, daily life, practical things, a strong marriage, um, good kids. They have seen the love of the body, the community, the strength that believers have in the face of tragedy and trials. But in the end, sadly, many of them refuse to kneel before the Almighty God and say, I don't understand. I can't intellectually put all the pieces together, but I will believe anyway. Help my unbelief. The assurance of faith is not found in intellectual or visual proof, but in submission to the faithful one. Let me say that again. The assurance of faith is not found in intellectual or visual proof, but in submission to the faithful one. How many of the wise and intelligent have chosen intellectual satisfaction over faith in Christ? After all, it's foolishness to the Greeks. This is not saying that we have an unreasonable faith. In fact, we have a very reasonable faith. In fact, we have the only reasonable faith. But it will never be reasonable without faith. You cannot reason someone into heaven. We would love to. For those of you who can really argue, you would love to, right? You would love to be able to reason someone into heaven. But it just doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. That person must submit even their, their mind. I'm not saying that you throw reason and intellect out the window, but at a certain point, you recognize that the virgin birth makes no sense. At a certain point, you recognize that a creator of the universe, it just doesn't make sense, and you must submit. Now, once you submit in faith, then it makes sense. You understand it. You don't understand it perfectly because we have an infinite God. Many will reason their way into eternal judgment rather than submitting to a God whose, faith, whose infiniteness requires the impossibility of one to wrap their mind around him. He is only known through faith and pleased by faith. We find that to be true in this text. In response to the commendation of Enoch for his faith, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. It's impossible without faith. No one can please God without faith. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I've met people also who believe 
They will say that they believe that he exists, but they don't believe that he will reward those who seek him. They say, I am, they are burdened in their sin. They are covered in their sin. And the, the weight and the shame and the pain of their sin, they make comments like, oh, God would never forgive me of this. Or they make comments like, um, I can never forgive myself for this. Well, the good news is, you don't have to forgive yourself. God does. And he is the one, when we draw near to him, and we believe in faith, and he rewards those who seek him. Because the assurance of faith is not found in intellectual or visual proof, but in submission to the faithful one. So, chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a shotgun blast of the famously faith-filled people in the Old Testament. It is, let's call it the red carpet of faith. Okay, you can see these guys walking down, clad in their flannel graph garb, you know, wearing all their duds. They look like a Christmas, uh, Christmas play. All right, so these guys, they look like this. They're walking down here. This is what we see in chapter 11. We have, um, you know, we have... Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and David and Samuel and the prophets. And that would have been the list if I wrote it. But what I do, I, I skipped a couple of them, okay? That would have been the list if I wrote it, all right? However, that's not the list. Wedged right in the middle are four guys that don't seem to fit the bill. You have a coward, Gideon goes around cutting trees down at night trying to fulfill the Lord's wills, but is afraid to death of getting caught. Okay, we have, we have him. All right. They had a song about him a while ago, I'll be a Gideon or something like that. And I was like, all right. But anyway, so we, we recognize that character studies in the Old Testament can go awry, especially when you do a song about it. All right. Then uh, you've got a mama's boy. All right. We've got Barak. Okay, do you know the only reason that Barak made it into this list is because Deborah, like, pushed him and said, if you don't do this right now, you're never going to be remembered for anything, and I'm going to go claim the victory. It would have been Deborah in here if she didn't push Barak to do the right thing. All right, you got this spineless leader, all right? He's, he's been given, uh, he's even been given... Um, the Spirit of God to help him lead and, and judge the people, but he shrinks back, and Deborah's really doing the job, just kind of pushing him along. All right, so you've got Barak in here. We're not going to talk about him either. Um, and then you've got the ladies' man, Samson, right, who seems to be falling all over everywhere and just making a mess of things, right? So he just, like every story about him has to do with um, moral failure. And then you have Jephthah, who's a mercenary, who at the end of his life, we're not really sure if he sacrificed his daughter or not. Okay, so we've got some major questions about what's going on with these individuals. And yet, God puts them right into Hebrews as men of tremendous faith. So, obviously, that leaves us kind of scratching our heads. But... Let's think about where Chris finished out in Joshua as we look into one of these examples. Let's look at, let's look at the ladies' man here for a little bit. Let's look at Samson, all right? So we'll look at Samson, and uh, we'll, we'll head to Joshua 24-24 before we do, just to kind of establish um, some context. Um, 
of Samson here and really kind of pick up where we were left off in Joshua and work our way through um, with, with uh, this, uh, these, these judges that are now on the scene. So if we remember in Joshua 24, the people, they did not do what they said they would do. And God says that he is not going to go with them. Um, and yet, you know, they, they repent, they come to him, and then they finally, uh, Joshua draws a line in the sand, and in these final few verses, we see them obeying through the days of Joshua and the elders who outlive him, and they make the statement, they say, the Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. However, in Judges, it doesn't take us long. We're in the first chapter here. Look at uh, 127 in Judges, and you'll pick up the pattern here. I'll just read a few of these, but it says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Then in verse 29, it says, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. And verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out. Naphtali did not drive out. And so the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come into the plain. The people of Dan are, they're like living in caves in the promised land because they refused to obey the Lord and press on in faith, knowing that he would fight their battles. And so what happens is we get to chapter 2, the angel of the Lord is on the scene. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgam, Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they will become thorns in your side. And so the rest of Judges is this back and forth between the people going after other gods, and then they get, you know, the thorns in their side. All these nations around them come after them, right? And then they cry to the Lord and ask for his help. And what does he do? The angel of the Lord empowers people, and in his mercy, he comes and helps them. Look at this in verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved with pity by their groanings because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. So what do we see? We see God continuing in his faithfulness to be merciful to people who absolutely have just continued to reject him. So that's the milieu. That's what we find um, kind of as Samson is coming onto the scene, you know, several judges before him, but that's what we see Samson kind of coming into here. So the angel of the Lord was to drive them out, 
but yet instead drive the people, you know, the nations out of the land, but instead he's confronting them. And he is, even in their weakness, he's being merciful to them when they cry for help. Have you ever surprised when you read the Bible? It seems like more and more I just get surprised by stuff. You know, I think somewhat it comes to do with like there's a certain like comfortable comfortability that you have with the scriptures where you've read it and you've thought about it. And especially if you've grown up with it, you know, you're like, yeah, I know this, you know, but in actuality, um, <laughs> it's endless. You know, the, I mean, our God is infinite. You can never go in here and just say, you know, just keep reading the text and finding out that, oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. Why? Because God, and he's going to work through the spirit, through the spirit to open up your eyes to the word of the scripture. He's going to illumine your mind as you read it. And so um, I was surprised um, when I came across this text. So I think it's kind of like the reason for going to Samson actually is because of um, it was one I tell, you, I tell you I do this, but I drive around and listen to the scriptures while I drive around. And this is the one that really, there was one thing, and I'll bring it up later, but one thing in Samson that just kind of piqued my interest and said, why in the world would this guy be in the hall of faith? And then some of the stuff that you see happening throughout his life are truly remarkable. They're really amazing that God would do this and use him um, for this task that he had to judge his people. So I began to ask the question, why is it there? <clears throat> I would understand it if it were based on doing miraculous deeds in the power of the Spirit. You know, if Samson was in that list, if it was a list of people who did miraculous deeds, you're like, sure, sure, yeah, I can see why he's here. But, in, but by faith? But for faith? So that's why we're going to look at this narrative to figure it out, hopefully. Um, it's important when we read narratives, just as a reminder, it's important when we read narratives to remember that the writers of Scripture will often not deal with moral indiscretions the way we want them to. They seem to gloss right over them and make no comment. And some of that is because of the narrative. They want you to have those uncertain questions as you walk through. right? And so they're, they're not going to answer those questions for you. They'll just kind of let it sit. In Judges, we have generations of people doing what is right in their own eyes. The country is in chaos, and God chooses to use less than perfect people to walk through to carry out his plan, to enact justice, and to save his people. When we read this, it is important for us to stick to the point. What is the overall idea that we are to walk away with? Many make mistakes of making these character studies and miss the overall point of the passage, and so our goal is to not do that today. And we will be jumping around a little bit. It's too bad that we can't just, you know, work through this. Jared worked through it a, a long while ago, um, and it was a blessing to us. Um, hopefully uh, another time we'll be able to work through these in detail. Uh, but this story starts in chapter 13. Let's read 13, 1 through 7 uh, together. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, and said to her, that's interesting as well, right? The angel of the Lord appears to a woman. We see him doing that throughout the scriptures, right? Um, that is kind of a, a normal mantra of something big about to happen. Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you, have, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, 
For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so that so then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So this story starts out, chapter 13, with the usual situation of God's people and judges. They're in trouble. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. Out of this situation, the angel of the Lord comes to Manoah, to Manoah's wife and promises that out of her barren womb will come, come a son who will begin to save the Israelites out of the hand of the Philistines. She is given special instructions about how he will be raised, no shaving, no wine, nothing unclean. But in verse 25 is the first time that we really see, um, we really hear about Samson himself. It says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. So following this intro, one would expect him to get to work at his mission of saving the people from the hand of the Philistines. But rather, what do we see him doing? We see him taking a wife from the Canaanites. And you would be right to question it, and so did his parents. Let's read 14, 1 through 3. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, and in Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people, anybody, <laughs> that, you could, that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Which is, I think that's kind of funny the way that he says it. But um, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. He's like, this is exactly the woman that I want. I need you to go get her for me. Um, so first, you know, it puts us in a situation like, oh, what's going to happen, you know? Um, who is this guy, you know? Um, but in verse 4, we find the answer to our question, right? It says, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at that time. The Philistines ruled over Israel. Throughout the next few accounts of his life, we have him continuing to make the reader uncomfortable with his actions. Question his morality, wonder why he is doing what he's doing, and yet all the while, every time he goes up against the Philistines, the Spirit, of, the spirit is upon him, and we know from Hebrews that in faith he believes that he can do anything because God is with him. Let's read 15, 14 through 17. It says, And when he came to Lehi, this is after he started everybody's crops on fire, right? Uh, so when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that, that were caught that caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it 
and with it he struck down a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. I think it's funny too. Samson's a rhymer. If you notice through the narrative, he likes to make rhymes and riddles and all kinds of stuff, which is also, I guess, intrinsic of a ladies' man. I don't know. Um, but he's, you know, so, so he, he likes to rhyme. However, we have time. I, I just want to make a little note here. It's kind of, it's also, it's not it's surprising, but not in a, the, the right way, I suppose. But when he goes back in 14, when he marries, he, he goes to have this, marriage to this uh, Philistine woman, and and he, uh, <laughs> it's right after the riddle part, they figure out his riddle, and he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. So he, at first, he calls his wife a heifer. He wonders why when he comes back, she didn't wait for him, but yet, somehow, he thinks bringing her a goat will solve everything. <laughs> So anyway, you can read through. There's some cultural funny stuff in there, but you can read through there when you get a chance. But anyway, that's not the point. But, um, but anyway, so he's rhyming here at the end. He, he says this, that he's, he's done these things. And it says, as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. At that place uh, was called Ramath Lehi. So in this, he, he kills a thousand men with a donkey. But yet, what do we see him doing? He's still doing the wrong thing. You remember what he's not supposed to do? He's not supposed to pick up dead things, nothing unclean. I guess it's a fresh jawbone. Is that as, that's as close as possible, I suppose. All right, but it's a jawbone of a donkey. Remember, previously on his way to wreak havoc on the Philistines, he goes in and, you know, through this marriage, he goes in and takes honey out of the carcass of a lion. He just continually, like, he continues to fail, you know, all along the way. But yet, um, but yet when he looks at God and he goes in about to do these things, he trusts that God is faithful and that God will do his work. After he's killed these thousand men, apparently he's thirsty. I guess you get thirsty after killing a thousand people by yourself with a donkey's jaw, okay? However, let's think about this for a minute. Read, uh, after we read it here, it says in verse 18, And he was thirsty, and he called on the Lord and said, You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Look what God does. And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out of it. You guys recognize the significance of this? When did God do that before? Moses, all right, the great man of all Old Testament history, Moses, he asked for water. The people were complaining. He asked for water. What does God say? Strike the rock. Then God says, speak to the rock. He, he brings water for all of the people. And here you have one guy who can't get it together. And he says, God, can I have some water? And he opens the rock and brings out water. For one guy who seems to be making what we would say is making all the mistakes in the world. So I've never noticed that that was what piqued my interest to Samson as well, was that there is something going on here with the way in which he trusts God um, that is unique. Where else has we seen this? We saw it in Moses, but yet we see him doing it for the one man of faith, Samson. 
We are familiar with the account of Samson and Delilah in chapter 16. Samson loves Delilah and is staying with her. The lords of the Philistines use Delilah to try to find out where Samson's strength lies. He misleads her numerous times, but why does he do it? Why is he probably there to begin with? Okay, he's doing it because each time he each time they come back, he kills more and more and more Philistines. He is fulfilling his mission even through this. Until finally in pride, he tells Delilah to shave his head and he will have strength like any other man. At this point, he goes out, right? Remember the story? He says, I will go out. What does he say? I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. You know why I think the writer of Hebrews includes Samson in the hall of faith? It isn't because of his wisdom or his example of perfect law-keeping. It is because he genuinely trusts God. Now we see in his disobedience, he's still chastened. He's still, you know, he's, dis, he's, uh, he's um, brought to account for some of his, you know, actions here, his pride. But we can see in verse 28, a humble Samson. Let's look at 16:28, the end of his life. Verse 28, he is ready to avenge himself while fulfilling his mission. He recognizes that he has no strength apart from God. And rather than in pride, even with his hair grown back, he prays, O Lord, please remember me and strengthen me only this once. O God, that I might be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And God answers his prayer of faith. So 29 through 30 say, And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Let me complete my mission. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell on the Lord's and on all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. So I have only one thing to say about this, is that the assurance of faith is not found in our faithfulness, but in our trusting of his faithfulness. When it all is said and done, God cares about your heart. The main thing that all the people in the hall of faith have in common is that when almost everyone around them was doubting the power of God, went off serving other gods, these held true to their faith to him alone and were commended for it. This doesn't give us any license to go out and live immoral lives. We have the entire rest of Scripture that tells us how to do these things. It doesn't justify his behavior. We know we can even see in his own life how he was he was he was uh, judged for his own. He was um, he was chastened. He was disciplined for his own behavior. So it shouldn't send us that route. But what it should do is it should encourage us in the fact that if you're honest with yourself, you know that you are imperfect, that you lack, that you doubt, that you, um, that you do things that are not right and not good, and yet what God asks for us is that we look to him in our faith and that we rely on him to cause us to um, not doubt. So what about us today? To the unbeliever today, I would say the assurance of faith is not found in intellectual or visual proof, but in submission to the faithful one. 
we skipped these verses as we were reading in chapter 10, but there is a fearful expectation of judgment for all who refuse to believe in this almighty God. No church going, no list of moral standards will save you. God says that faith in Jesus alone will save. To the believer, I would say, are you struggling to believe? Have the challenges and difficulties of life caused you to question God? And what I would say to you is remember, the assurance of your faith is not found in our faithfulness. It's not found in your faithfulness. It is found in trusting his faithfulness. So in that, we see that reward, that longing for what they long to look is Jesus Christ himself and eternity with this one who we have come to know. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you would take us to your text today. We are thankful that you would um, that you would pull us out of darkness into your light, that you would open our minds to the truth of the gospel, that you would um, bring us here today and challenge us by your word. I pray that our faith would be encouraged, not faith to nothingness, but faith to you, faith in what you tell us in your word and that we would remember that faith is only as good as the one in whom we are trusting and you are good. I pray that you would help us today and encourage us, cause us to rejoice knowing that you have done this work. You would expand our faith, cause us to trust in you even more. And as we go about this week that we would be in your word, that we would know this one? Or how can we know the faithful one without being in your word? We can't. I pray that we would know you, and in knowing you, we would love you. And in knowing and loving you, we would continue to believe in you, persevere to the end, receive the reward that awaits us, eternity with you. I pray these things in your name, amen.